and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a podcast hosted by twin sisters, separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Lulu. And I'm your co-host, Pi. Pi, before we get started, is there anything that you've been into or up to that you'd like to tell our listeners about since it's been quite a while since we last recorded? Well, I've been on my winter break from college, which means that I've had a lot of free time to read and watch things. Our King Arthur episode kind of put me in a King Arthur mood, so I went and read the anthology Sword Stone Table, edited by Swapna Krishna and Jen Northington, which is a series of stories imagining diverse retellings of the King Arthur mythos. And I loved pretty much every story in this anthology, which is pretty rare for a book of short stories by various authors. So I would highly recommend that. It was really good. Then I read She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker Chan, which is a reimagining of 14th century Chinese history with a lot of queer characters and interesting explorations of gender and sexuality and some really cool ruminations on power and ambition. And it made me very sad, but also very good. Then I read Little Thieves by Margaret Owen, which is a retelling of the fairy tale The Goose Girl, in which a wicked maid steals the identity of the princess that she serves, and in this retelling then goes around robbing rich people blind until she crosses the wrong god and gets cursed and then is dragged kicking and screaming into becoming a better person and having friends. And it was really funny, but also touched on some like heavy subjects about becoming a better person, and I liked that a lot. And finally, I have been watching the TV show Arcane on Netflix, which is based off of a video game, but I don't know anything about the video game. So I just watched it as a regular season of a TV show. It has really gorgeous animation and it follows two sisters in a divided city that's kind of steampunk fantasy. And it's really beautiful and the characters are really compelling. And it has like this great tragic arc compelled by the characters actions. And I'm just like, I really love it. It was amazing. Ooh, those all sound really good. I feel like whenever we do our little like intro, what are you reading or watching things? It just ends with me being like, wow, Pi sounds like she's reading and watching some good things. But that is still true today. Unfortunately, I just finished up my academic semester. So I have mostly been suffering and writing a lot of essays, not watching fun TV shows or reading books. But I have been done long enough that I have been reading and watching some stuff. So I'm currently reading my way through the comic Die, which is written by Kieran Gillen and features art by Stephanie Hans. It's a really cool comic with the premise being that it's about a group of friends who, when they were teenagers, were sucked into this fantasy world that they were playing like a D&D game set in. And then they escape, but they manage to leave one of them behind. And then as adults, decades later, they're sucked back into the world and have to confront the person they left behind. It's a really great deconstruction of like fantasy tropes and like a really interesting look at like tabletop roleplay games and character archetypes you find in Dungeons and Dragons and also has such phenomenal art by Stephanie Hans. It's very good. And I'm very excited to get to the end of it and see how it goes. I also just finished reading A Master of Gin by P. Jelly Clark, which is a murder mystery set in a steampunk fantasy version of early 20th century Kyra, which is just as cool as it sounds. And we're going to be talking about it in our next episode. So you'll probably hear a lot more about it in a couple weeks. And I also just started reading The Conductors by Nicole Glover, which is a magic-tinged murder mystery set in 1870s Philadelphia. And it's about a married couple who used to be conductors on the Underground Railroad and are now investigating the murder of their friend, like with the help of some magic. Also really good. Also going to be the topic of our future episodes. So you can stay tuned for that if it sounds interesting. And I also just finished watching season three of What We Do in the Shadows, which is basically a sitcom about vampire roommates, 
I don't have a lot of intellectual thoughts on this TV show, except it was funny. And also, Guillermo de la Cruz is actually the only character to exist on television ever. And thank you for coming to my TED Talk on that. I mean, I have to agree. He is the only character ever, really. Well, okay. Nacho is also a character sometimes. But I've really enjoyed, like, how it is a comedy, but also has some very interesting character arcs over the past couple of seasons. So we've done a lot of episodes on superhero comics, and as you may know by now, we have a lot of opinions on them. This episode is not going to be about comics, but rather about books, specifically books that kind of explore the darker underside of superhero comics, who gets caught in the crossfires of fights between heroes and villains, who pays the price for heroes being visible figures of justice, stuff like that. So the first book that we're going to be talking about is Hench by Natalie Zena Walshots, which is a 2020 adult novel. And it's kind of about what it's like to be one of the people caught up in a battle between superheroes and supervillains. You know, all those like memes about what it's like to be a henchman of a supervillain in Gotham and how every day you're being beat up by Batman or like the Joker is firing you from your job. That's pretty much this book. Okay, I have to say... It's a really niche genre of memes that I doubt our listeners will have like heard of, but I really enjoy memes that are just about life in Gotham City and like being a tired civilian who's like, oh God, Superman picked up my car and used it to like beat Darkseid over the head and I was just done with my down payments on it. Like I really enjoy that type of meme and it's a very niche subcategory. Even as someone who does not read a lot of DC comics, I just find the concept of Gotham, which is, seems to just be like this magnet for like all supervillains and superheroes kind of funny. So I enjoyed reading a book that's basically like exploring what it's like to exist in a world of supervillains and superheroes, but not as someone who has powers. Very interesting. So the main character of this book is Anna Tromedlov, who is a broke and stressed millennial who does temp data entry and analysis for supervillains. She primarily spends her days trying to figure out the civilian identities of superheroes. She is not like a bad guy who's like cackling evilly while performing like evil schemes. She's just kind of a really broke person who works in the freelance and gig economy and needs some money. This book has a lot of themes about how capitalism is hell and it really wants you to know that. So Anna basically lives in a world where superheroes and supervillains are fairly commonplace, and she doesn't really think that working for a villain is any worse than for, say, working for an oil baron, because it's, it's pretty much the same amount of harm, right? So Anna manages to get a pretty good permanent gig working for a supervillain called Electric Eel, and just when things are starting to look up for her, the most famous hero in the world, Super Collider, bursts into one of Electric Eel's conferences. I mean, it was actually a ransom, but Anna didn't know that at the time, killing several people and badly injuring Anna. So permanently injured, laid off from work, bitter, and with a serious case of PTSD from nearly being killed, Anna begins to develop a serious grudge against heroes. She gets really into analyzing the harm that superheroes cause in terms of death, injuries, and property damage, and begins to analyze it in terms of superheroes as natural disasters. The paper that this book references about how to calculate the cost of natural disasters by Illinois is actually a real paper, which is kind of interesting. And by the cost of superheroes or natural disasters, we don't just mean like the cost of property damage. We mean that Anna figures out how to put a number on like the lives that are lost or people who are like permanently injured in like the line of fire by superheroes and basically figures out how to calculate not only the damage on like places, but also the damage done on people like to herself. Anna comes to the conclusion that superheroes are actually really bad for the world and cause a lot of accidental harm and civilian death. And in fact, they might do more harm than good. 
So when she is recruited by Super Collider's nemesis, a villain called Leviathan, Anna begins to work to use her data analysis skills to bring down Super Collider and the other heroes that he works with. I think that this book might be one of the most, if not the most compelling, descents into villainy that I've ever read, because you can really, really understand where Anna is coming from, because when she agreed to be at a press conference that her boss, Electric Eel, was holding, she had no idea that it was going to be E holding the mayor's son ransom for money, and she just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when Super Collider arrived. She wasn't a violent person, she wasn't intending to fight him, she had no powers, there was no way that she could stand up against a guy who has super strength and can fly. And so she was working for a supervillain, but the book asks, did she really deserve to get hurt that badly when she herself hadn't actually done anything? And so it's incredibly easy to relate to Anna's anger that the world sees people like Super Collider as heroes when he's actually permanently inflicted damage and trauma on her. Like when Anna's in the hospital uh, after the attack and the police come by to interview her and give us and when the police come by to interview her and get her statement, they just straight up don't believe her that her injuries came from Super Collider and not one of the villains, which makes her really angry and bitter. I think this book does a good job of setting Anna up at the start as someone who works for supervillains, but isn't like the most evil person ever. Because when the book opens, she's literally just trying to calculate if she has enough money to get groceries. And she's just kind of trying to survive. And how she survives is by getting these low-level data analysis jobs with supervillains. So she's yes, she's compromising her morals, but she's not like torturing kittens or like killing superheroes for a living. She just kind of like wants to survive. And then you see her get like horribly injured by Super Collider in this moment that means absolutely nothing to him. He just kind of throws her aside and with his super strength basically like destroys her body. And you have to see like the extremely slow painful aftermath of her like slowly healing from this injury and like being kind of racked with PTSD and chronic pain and like knowing that in this moment that honestly meant nothing to Super Collider like her whole entire life has been changed and you're like and by the end you're like yeah I can definitely see why she would develop a grudge against superheroes under these circumstances. So by the time Anna actually gets recruited by a supervillain you understand her reasons for hating Super Collider really well and Leviathan also has his own reasons for hating Super Collider which are not revealed until much later in the book but they're also pretty justified. So even when Anna's actions go from just calculating Super Collider's damage to actively trying to ruin his life, orchestrating a kidnapping, and being involved in a murder, we can still see where she's coming from because the uh, event that sparked her hatred of superheroes is so relatable and understandable. I mean, it's not that it's relatable, but it's like you can feel it on a very human level because it's a story about what it means to exist in a world with these incredibly powerful beings who maybe don't actually care about individual lives, especially your life as much. And honestly, when I was reading it, part of me reminded of like how when you're reading Greek mythology, there are just these like very powerful petty gods that mess with humans' lives and don't really care. And I feel like being a human in mythological ancient Greece and being a human in Anna's world are both kind of similar in that you're just like often subject to the whims of these like violent greater than human forces that don't really see you as like being worth anything at all. So Anna kind of comes from a place of being like, well, if you think that I don't matter and you're going to ruin my life without thinking about it, then I'm going to devote the rest of my life to ruining your life in turn. And I thought it was a very interesting take on vengeance because the thing about it is that it's not just like, I'm going to challenge a super collider to a giant duel and kill him in front of the whole city. It 
takes like these variety of forms because I think like normally when we think about supervillain versus superhero conflicts they're like epic battles in skies and like kidnapping people and trying to blow up a city and stuff but Anna opts for these much more subtle methods because first she just tries to calculate how much damage Super Collider is inflicting on the world and tries to publicize that information in an attempt to like ruin his reputation but then after she becomes recruited by Leviathan she starts to use the knowledge of the personal lives and civilian identities of superheroes to sort of like gradually chip away at their lives, like one inconvenience and one moment of tension at a time until they reach this breaking point and still continues to publicly calculate the monetary cost in lives and property damage that superheroes have cost to the world in like this attempt to kind of highlight the stories whose lives have just been utterly destroyed by them because she doesn't just want revenge on Super Collider by killing him, but she wants to like publicly taint his image and make people no longer trust him and ruin his life in the way that he basically ruined hers, which is a very interesting, realistic kind of like down to earth way to seek vengeance. Yeah, Anna also has a very like cynical yet dryly funny narration that's really enjoyable to read about. So while you're reading about her doing all of these like kind of awful things and like being involved in terrible stuff, you're kind of like laughing at it but also understanding why she's doing what she's doing. I think it does have this sort of sense of dry humor and honestly like occasionally even office comedy vibes which I kind of liked because it kept the book from feeling monotonous because even as it gets into some very dark territory, sometimes they'll just be like, yeah, wow, like the coffee in Leviathan's break room really sucks. And it gives like this very down-to-earth feel to the book. I think the down-to-earth tone also helps you understand um, the horrors that Anna goes through because it really shows like how clearly your life can be totally derailed or destroyed by being caught by being caught in the crossfire and sometimes the humor comes in moments of a supervillain's life interrupting a regular civilian life such as one of Anna's dates being interrupted because a wounded henchman that the supervillain she's working for at the time needs her help so parts of this book almost read like a workplace comedy drama because of Anna's own perspective on being like just one person who's like working as for like a really low level villain and it's fairly interesting to read about because you don't really think about the henchmen in super in in superhero media very often like are the people who are working for the joker like are they getting paychecks like what who what about the person who delivers lex luther's coffee these people aren't really people who get explored a lot in superhero media but it's but this book is all about that although even if there are comedic moments in this it's definitely not a comedy and it's really more about the exhausting, terrifying, and sometimes painful experience of existing in a world filled with superhumans who can destroy your life in one blow in the name of justice or just like completely by accident. I mean, this is definitely not a comedy. There are comedic moments and I think they work really well with the book, but also Anna's descent into villainy does become genuinely horrifying and she crosses the line many, many times. And there is like extreme violence and often body horror in this book. So like there are sort of funny moments about just like the day-to-day mundanity of working for a supervillain, but also it's genuinely quite a dark book. I've seen this book compared to the TV show The Boys on Amazon Prime a lot. I think because of the way they both explore the dark underbelly of superheroes and fame and what happens if the people who have special powers who are supposed to be keeping you safe aren't actually keeping you safe. But I honestly think that I liked Hench a lot more. I think it's more interesting to explore 
the dark side of superheroes when they're legitimately convinced that they're good people who are saving the world rather than what happens if they're just cold and cruel killers like the character of Homelander. So I just I found Hench much more compelling than that TV show, although that's just, that's just my opinion. I have not seen The Boys, so I can't really weigh in on that. But I do think actually if you like Watchmen, which also explores the dark side of superheroes and like vigilante justice, you might actually enjoy Hench as well. Like they're not that similar, but I think if you sort of enjoy this deconstruction of the superhero genre, you might like what Hench has to offer. Also, I really enjoyed the way that this book has morally ambiguous superheroes, but it's not because they sort of like bend the rules or have their own moral code, but it's because they they just go too far in the name of justice. And they think that they are good people, but in fact, they go so far in the name of trying to be good and appearing good that they ultimately sort of come back around to causing violence and destruction. Like, it's like Super Collider is willing to kill or severely injure a room full of low-level hench people who don't have powers of their own, which is not because he's a bad person, but just because he's so focused on the pursuit of justice that, like, he doesn't think it's a bad thing to do, even though it really is. Also, I will say I was not a huge fan of the boys because I felt like there was a lot of violence against women. And there are some parts of this book that explore, like, misogyny in the workplace and stuff but it's not quite as heavy against that in hench that's not to say this book is not without its unpleasant aspects for example there's some serious body horror and medical horror when it comes to anna's injuries that she receives at the hands of super collider and the way that they heal as well as a scene of an attempted lobotomy which is just like really unpleasant to read about but also important to the plot and then some serious body horror stuff of the climax which is kind of a spoiler to talk about but the violence in this book when it is present feels like it has a purpose it's either to show that like Anna has a point and these superheroes are causing a lot of damage or also to show that Anna herself is slowly becoming a worse and worse person who is willing to either commit violence herself or be involved with planning it. So it doesn't feel like there's just a lot of senseless violence for no reason. I mean, this book isn't full of action or violence because it really is about, you know, evil data analysis, but there is still some gross stuff like there is a lot of extreme violence and the author doesn't really skimp on describing the aftermath of that. There is, like you mentioned, some incredibly disgusting body horror at the climax that is going to haunt me for a long time. And also like, there is a really gross way that Anna orchestrates the death of a superhero at one point that is just like so coldly matter of fact that at that point you're like, oh, okay, this is where this is where this woman has like really crossed a line. I don't remember the guy's name, but it was the one with super speed. And like at that point when Anna describes very matter-of-factly how he died in this like painful, awful way that she slowly orchestrated, Anna herself like doesn't actually do a lot of stuff like hands-on. It's kind of like if the whole setup is like this giant evil Rube Goldberg machine, Anna is the one who like hits the first domino and then it all falls over and it leads to someone dying. And like once you get to the point where like this extended metaphor is going nowhere. Once you get to the point where like people start dying and violence is inflicted, you're like, oh geez, okay, like you've started crossing lines, which like it, it is a really great descent into villainy, but like also Natalie Zena Walshots does not hold back on like the sort of gross violent aspects of it. Yeah, Anna eventually ends up becoming a supervillain in her own right, and basically like the right hand of Leviathan, and she calls herself the auditor because she's kind of a, a math person. It's a 
very interesting character arc to watch because you know that Anna is becoming more and more evil, but she's also so good at justifying what she's doing that you kind of can't help but to be like, would I do this exact same thing if I was in her position? Who knows? And so eventually she kind of basically becomes like an equal partner of Leviathan, who is a nemesis of Super Collider and is kind of infamous for constantly wearing this like full body armor that looks like scales and he's just like kind of like a criminal mastermind who like is constantly like plotting super collider's downfall and he and anna originally bond over their like deep hatred of this one particular guy and their desire to see him be brought down and then killed then they eventually sort of become co-workers and then friends and then like I feel like there was maybe something a bit romantic going on there. Like Anna admitted that she had feelings for him, but she never acted on them. Although I would, be, have, I would have been quite curious to see how they would have been in a relationship. Leviathan is a pretty interesting character because he exists as this force in the world that Anna lives in, where he's kind of like the man behind the machine, like this supervillain that all superheroes are afraid of confronting. Um, but then you sort of get to like know him more and more as Anna becomes like, like you said, sort of his right hand and like the person that he trusts the most. And he gives her all these resources to enact vengeance on Super Collider. But also we always get the sense that like Leviathan is sort of holding things back. And it was interesting to sort of slowly learn more about his character as it unfolds, because with Anna, we know her backstory. We were there when we saw it. We know what she's thinking all the time. But with Leviathan, he is literally separated from the world by this like full buggy, scaly armor. And he's kind of an impenetrable character, like emotionally as well. We know he's this incredibly powerful supervillain with like a finger in every pie and like a ton of resources, but also we don't exactly know what motivates him against Super Collider specifically for most of the book. So I enjoyed sort of seeing Leviathan's character unfold over the course of the novel as we get this like peek into his backstory and like what really makes him tick. And when we eventually do learn what motivates him in his vendetta against Super Collider, it is pretty well justified like super collider has this appearance of being like the perfect hero but we later learn there's a lot going on underneath the surface of him that maybe is not as wonderful and wholesome and in the pursuit of justice as people would like to believe that he is so we do eventually learn why super collider and leviathan have this big um arch nemesis thing going on when anna becomes leviathan's right hand man it does kind of haunt me that this book like ended without a conclusive resolution of the fact that anna and leviathan like definitely have feelings for each other but like never acted on it and i'm just like this is haunting me i want to know what would have happened okay wait wait yeah actually i want to talk about that a little bit because i had thoughts on it so my thoughts are that i i don't think every book needs romance and in fact, I think there should be more books without romance because it can just become really annoying when you read like your 90 millionth book and you're like, does no one have friends or family? Anyway, and the thing about Hench is that there isn't really any romance in the book. Like Anna goes on like a date at one point and like she thinks that people are hot and like there is some sort of tension with Leviathan. And we get like a bit of the sense that there is sort of this reciprocal like Leviathan and Anna work together they're partners in crime and leviathan like cares about her more than any person in the world to the point where like he's willing to do like some sort of terrible things to protect her but we don't really get like a ton of resolution to like the are they ever going to act on these emotions and become anything more than partners in crime which personally i was 
fine with in this book because I think it would have felt sort of shoehorned in at the end if it was something like, and now Anna and Leviathan are a romantic supervillain couple and are going to like go on dates and Leviathan is going to figure out how to kiss her even though he wears full body armor and has pincers. Like, I, I don't think that would have worked for this book. So if they want to do a sequel, I think it could be sort of interesting to see how that would evolve, especially because it's like, who knows if Anna and Leviathan would like remain partners in crime or if like she would split off and go her own way. But I was kind of fine with their relationship remaining ambiguous because I think this is very much a book about gray areas. It's about characters who do bad things in the name of good. It's about characters who start off being justifiably angry and then go do even worse things. And I think if it had just wrapped up with like a nice little neat bow where they both act on their feelings and they're like, now we're a supervillain power couple, it just wouldn't have really fit with the themes of the book to me. So I think the way that it ended ambiguously, I think, worked for me personally. Yes, I, I do like a good evil villain couple. I think they can be very fun, but I also do agree that I'm not sure there's like any point in this book where Anna and Leviathan getting together it would work because at a certain point the pace starts going very fast. There's a lot of stuff going on all at once and they like need to focus on their end goal of taking down Super Collider. But the ending of this book is slightly ambiguous in that it could either be like a very open ending of a standalone or it could be kind of a cliffhanger setup for like a potential sequel. So I'm, I'm quite curious if Natalie Zena Balshaw will ever write anything else in this universe. And I think if she does, and if it's about Anna and Leviathan, she'll probably explore their relationship more as well as some of the things that are set up at the end of the book. But as it is, like, it's not that it's an unsatisfying ending. It's just that it feels like if she wanted to write more, then there could be more story. Oh yeah, I would definitely write a sequel because there is more story to tell in this world and I think Anna's character could go to even more drastic and interesting places. So I think it does wrap up and like there's not really like, wait, I thought we had 50 more pages to go kind of feeling, but I think I would definitely read more in it. Oh, also this is really random, but one thing that this book satisfied me a lot about is that, okay, so I think the movie... Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice is a terrible movie. Like it's not a good movie. I didn't enjoy watching it. I don't know why I saw it. But I did like the way that the opening scene is basically a reshoot of like, I'm assuming the big superhero versus Superman battle from a previous Superman movie, but like from the perspective of a civilian on the ground and like how terrifying it would be to have these like godlike creatures that are just grappling in the sky and like buildings are falling over and like it sort of feels like you're in a war zone. And this book is kind of like the opening of that movie, but for 400 pages and actually good. So this personally satisfied me a lot because I used to think to myself, wow, the first five minutes of Batman v Superman were really good. I wish the rest of the movie had been that good. But now I'm like, oh, I just have Hench to fill that place in my heart instead. Now that you mentioned it, that is absolutely a similarity between those two pieces of media. See, what I really liked about Hench is that this book delves into the lives of the non-powered people in superhero media, like the secretary that brings the villain coffee, the person who just wants to make rent and they're, so they're working for a villain, the henchmen that the heroes casually kill on their way to the actual big battle, the fact that dating a hero will get you kidnapped by the bad guys a lot, that kind of stuff. And I do agree, I remember finding that the beginning scene of Batman versus Superman very compelling, but then it kind of zooms back out and is like once again about leaving like, titan power characters like fight each other in the sky again and i was like wait no but we had something interesting going on here whereas hench that's what the whole book is about which is why i found it so interesting 
it's a piece of superhero media, but this aspect manages to make it feel really grounded. And when the superhero characters do turn up, it does a good job of kind of making their powers and personalities also feel grounded. For example, Super Collider is like basically the Superman of this universe because he's super strong and he can fly. And he's really into justice. But this book also makes it clear that he's like a really scary person to be around because he's convinced that he's a good guy. But that doesn't mean that he's not capable of great harm. Like, for example, there's this one scene where he lifts Anna up by her neck and like she can tell that like if he wanted to kill her he could do it without like any effort he could just snap her neck or tear her from limb to limb and it's legitimately kind of frightening to read that from her perspective because like superman hauls around lex luther all the time being like a better like be a better person stop being a bad person you never really think about how like scary it would be to have these really powerful people in the world who could kill you like as easily as they wanted to but then this book kind of makes it clear that like even if super collider thinks that he's a good person he's still a terrifying person to be around because he has the potential of such great destruction and he's so convinced that anything he does is in the pursuit of greater justice also on the way that super collider is probably kind of an homage slash deconstruction of the superman archetype (laughs) the fact that they have this reveal near the end of the book that Super Collider can't actually fly. He can just jump really high. And like one of his other teammates who has these sort of like powers where she can create force fields, like keeps them up in the air, made me laugh because in older Superman comics, which I have never read, I just, I just know this is a piece of trivia. Superman couldn't actually fly. He could just jump really high. So I think Super Collider is supposed to be sort of a deconstruction of the Superman idea of like, what if you were really powerful and you didn't really use that power in a responsible way, but also he like is literally based off of Superman in that way. And I thought that was kind of funny. I actually feel like even though this book does have kind of an obvious analog to an existing superhero in the character of Super Collider, I think Walshots did a really good job of creating original superheroes because they have kind of fun names like Glassblower and Tardigrade and Quantum Entanglement and Leviathan, and they all have like interesting powers. It's definitely really hard to come up with superhero characters that are unique because there are so many of them already. Like these days, if you want to create like a man whose power is ice, you can't just call him Iceman because Iceman already exists. You need to call him like frost or something and like it's really hard to come up with characters that are unique and don't have names that have already been used by a different superhero media but I think that not at least you know Walshots managed it really well because they sound like actual names that superheroes would pick for themselves they sound like compelling and interesting and also like not completely silly which as someone who's tried to write media about superheroes is really hard to do because most of the good names are like already taken but she manages to come up with a lot of really unique and interesting ideas for powers and then comes up with names to match those. On the topic of unique powers one thing that I thought was kind of interesting is that It also explores what it would be like to have a power that is not really good for fighting bad guys, but it's just kind of an inconvenience in your everyday life because one of Anna's fellow temp workers and her best friend is a woman named June, whose power is just that she has really, really heightened senses, which is actually miserable. Like imagine if you went everywhere and smelled everything incredibly well all the time. And she uses it for like her temp jobs, but like it kind of also makes her life miserable. And as someone who really enjoys it when like superhero comics delve into powers that are not actually good at fighting people, like Eye Boy from the X-Men is just covered in eyes and like 
that's it. I kind of enjoyed the way I was like, yeah, I mean, if there was a world where people just spontaneously began developing superpowers, not everyone would be able to fly or like have super strength. Some people would just have really inconvenient things like being able to smell your perfume at 50 yards and being really overwhelmed by it. So I kind of like that. And if there was a sequel, which I believe the author has mentioned she would be interested in writing if her publishers pick it up, I would definitely like to see more of June because there's sort of this tragic friendship arc that Anna and June have where they've been friends for a really long time. They've worked through these various terrible temp jobs together. But as Anna starts to descend more into the world of Leviathan and become someone who has power, but is also kind of a target, June is like, I can't deal with you becoming this person anymore. I can't deal with being like in danger because of my proximity to you. I love you, but I'm cutting off all contact with you. And then we never really get to see June again because she sort of sets that boundary and Anna doesn't cross it even as she crosses a lot of moral lines. So if there is a sequel, I would be sort of interested to see what June is doing now and like what side she would take if she encounters Anna now. So please, I, I want the publishers to pick up a sequel to this book because I would read it. Yeah, there are definitely things in this book that I think could be explored in a sequel, June being one of them. It also does deal a little bit with uh, what happens if you do develop a superpower that is potentially useful and could make you into a hero because Anna doesn't have any experience with this because she didn't develop a superpower as a child but both Super Collider and Leviathan did and we learn later on in the book that they were picked up by this government program called the draft which kind of like picks up kids who have potentially useful superpowers and then trains them to be heroes and Leviathan got like pretty far along in the process until all the stuff that happened between him and Super Collider happened but it's just an interesting idea of like being trained to be a hero from a young age that I think could be potentially interesting to be explored in a sequel because like I said Anna didn't have a superpower as a kid so she only knows about the draft from what others have told her but like it seems like another deconstruction of what being a teen superhero is like so I think seeing more of that could be interesting. I feel like dark and gritty superhero media can sometimes get on my nerves a little bit because I don't like when people act like it's the only valid take on superheroes like the idea that Batman should like be a philanthropist I'm like, that's not going to happen. That's not what the story is about. You have to understand the story within the constraints of its own genre. But I did like Hench as a deconstruction of the superhero genre a lot because it has such a compelling descent into villainy and such an interesting look at collateral damage and how superheroes that could think they are genuinely good people could in fact be like unintentional forces of evil was really, really interesting to me. I would definitely read a sequel, but also this was like very good on its own. Do we want to talk about like specific spoilery stuff about the ending before we move on? Like what happens to Super Collider? Yeah, we could we could talk a little bit about spoilers now. Because we, we've, we've mentioned several times there's like some horrifying body horror stuff and that the climax is very dramatic. So basically what happens at the end of this book is that uh, Super Collider's like slightly lesser partner quantum entanglement ends up basically coming over to Anna and Leviathan's side because she's kind of tired of being like the second in command and not like getting her due because she's just like Super Collider's partner. And it's kind of interesting because it like explores like the fact that there's tension in between the different groups of superheroes and they're not all just like satisfied with their roles. But it does lead to like a genuinely very horrifying moment where 
to take supercollider out of commission, quantum entanglement has powers that are related to like force fields and being able to phase through objects, similarly to Kitty Pride. And she basically like phases super collider like through himself until he's just like this like pile of meat that used to be a person like she sticks like his leg in his torso and then just like leaves it there and it's like possibly some of the most horrifying body horror that i've ever read in my entire life kitty pride could never it was but also so like really interesting because it's like these heroes are capable of doing like really awful stuff that they know is awful and so that's kind of what the ending of the book is like anna and uh Lyathan have been working throughout the book to try to figure out a way to like take down super collider and like pick off his sidekick and like make his second in command turn against him and like reveal all this damage that he's done and so the very last part of the book is them taking down super collider himself in what is like a terrifying moment that like is so disgusting that you're honestly like super collider is a horrible person but i don't think he really deserved that and then at the end of the book uh leviathan's like well we took down one superhero but we could try to take down all of them and that's kind of how the book ends and it could be either a very loose ending or it could be like a cliffhanger set up for a sequel and i'm not sure which i guess time will tell but if natalie zena walshot's publishers are listening we here at never the twins shall meet would read a sequel 100 percent. so the next piece of media that we're discussing is somewhat of a different take on the dark side of superheroes and that is the Refrigerator Monologues by Catherine M. Valenti. And it is a collection of stories inspired by the dead girlfriends of superheroes from Marvel and DC Comics, which is written by Catherine Valenti and features illustrations by Annie Wu. And the title is inspired by the woman in refrigerators phenomenon, which is a term coined by comic writer slash critic Gail Simone. And woman in refrigerators or fridging, if you're gonna talk about the, vo- the verb form, refers to women being killed or depowered or injured or otherwise devastated or hurt to fuel the development of a male character. And it was inspired by an issue of a Green Lantern comic where the hero's girlfriend was literally killed and stuffed into his refrigerator to motivate him. And this incident led Gail Simone to start a website recording examples of this phenomenon. It's not just a thing in superhero media, but like it started out being a thing in superhero comics, and I'm assuming the title of Valenti's story collection is also an allusion to the vagina monologues, but that is a piece of media I know nothing about other than the title, so I, I can't actually comment on that. But basically, the refrigerator monologues is about a support group of the wives and girlfriends of superheroes who died due to their proximity to a superhero, and they're basically hanging out in the afterlife and telling their stories as part of a group called the Hell Hath Club, who host open mic nights. And the story is definitely a look at the phenomenon of fridging characters, but it's not really an attempt to like fix the stories or give them a happy ending or resurrect them. It's sort of more of a chance to let them tell their own side of the story, which includes like anger and a genuine look at whether these superheroes are really good people and what it means to be sort of this side castle in a story. I read this collection quite a while ago, but I thought it would fit really well with Hench. So I reread it for this episode. And there's a lot I like about it. I think Valenti is really good at creating characters that are obvious analogs to big name superheroes, but also have like their own unique backstories and names. And also the afterlife setting this book is really fun and original, though it's not really elaborated on as much as the superhero stuff. So there's six stories in the refrigerator monologues and each one is in the form of a monologue given by a female character who's like a very close analog to an existing female character from comics. 
So we're just going to kind of go through and talk about each of them and like what our thoughts are on each of the stories and like the general collection as a whole. I also really like the story collection. I feel like it's a really good riff on existing characters but manages to feel original through like the slightly new characters that Valenti creates as well as giving these female characters a voice that they didn't have in the original stories. I think it's probably slightly more enjoyable if you know at least a little bit about the source material that Valenti is commenting on, but the stories have their own original heroes and pack like an emotional punch, whether or not you're like, oh yeah, this is a reference to like this particular Green Lantern story. So I think it has merit even if you don't know exactly who she's talking about. Also, I think Valenti is really good at coming up with superhero names. Like we said earlier about Hench, it's really hard to come up with names for superheroes and villains that haven't already been used or sound really similar to an existing character. But I think Valenti manages it pretty well. There's a character called Grimdark, who's really obviously like a version of Batman. And Mr. Punch is the Joker. Kid Mercury is Spider-Man, stuff like that. And they're all very obviously based on existing superheroes, but they're kind of clever and fun names and they feel original enough that they're not just like copy pasted with the name changed. It's a collection that borrows really heavily from existing media but it also manages to stand on its own pretty well. So the first story in this collection is called Paige Embry is Dead and it's inspired by Gwen Stacy from the Spider-Man comics since it follows a scientist whose breakthrough grants her boyfriend superpowers only for her to die when he stops her from falling during a battle with the supervillain, only the whiplash from breaking her fall breaks her neck, similar to the iconic The Night Gwen Stacy Died story. Valenti's actually said in interviews that watching The Amazing Spider-Man 2 and being really angry about Gwen's inevitable death is what inspired her to write this entire book, which is why Paige narrates the introductory monologue. One thing to note about this book is that it's inspired by just as much the film adaptations as well as the comics, and so the portrayals of the women in them, such as the Gwen Stacy character being a scientist, which is not a thing in the comics, is a thing in the story. I don't have a lot of thoughts on the Peter Parker character, Kid Mercury, um, and I also don't know a lot about Peter Parker in the comics. Like, me and Lulu are both more Miles Morales and Cindy Moon people rather than the original Spider-Man, but he definitely is like a riff on the character because he's like this young idealistic guy who gains powers through like kind of a freak accident and then decides to use them for good and then he gets a nemesis and then the nemesis kills his girlfriend and it's extremely upsetting for both of them. Interestingly, there isn't an equivalent of an Uncle Ben in this story, which I guess is because he doesn't really matter in the story. The focus is on the Gwen Stacy character and there also is not an equivalent of Mary Jane Watson, who is the com competition in the love triangle between Gwen Stacy, Peter Parker, and Mary Jane. The story is like almost entirely about Paige Embry and her relationship with Kid Mercury and how that later went to her death. It does eventually mention later in the story that Kid Mercury eventually got married after Paige died though, so presumably that's some kind of reference to Mary Jane, but basically the story is Paige talking about how she was the one who created the scientific breakthrough that gave Kid Mercury his powers, she was the one who encouraged him to be a hero, and she was the one who eventually paid the price when she died by accident during a battle between him and his nemesis. I think the story works really well as an introduction to the collection because it's very much about taking the perspective of a female character who has been kind of wronged in an original, like in the original text and giving her a voice. And Paige doesn't like get to come back to life and 
live happily ever after with her boyfriend. She doesn't get to enact vengeance on the guy who killed her or anything like that. It's more of just an opportunity for her to talk about her side of the story and who she was and how she died. And I think that is also kind of powerful, even if it doesn't work as they fix it, because Gwen Stacy as a character has been dead for so, 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 so long to the point where like, she's one of the characters that sort of just mandated and has to stay dead. So I guess now there is that like Spider Gwen character from another universe, but like the mainstream Marvel universe, Gwen Stacy is always going to be dead. And that is always going to be a part of Peter Parker's backstory. But in the refrigerator monologues, the Gwen Stacy character kind of gets to speak and tell her own story more so than her actual superhero boyfriend, which is kind of satisfying to me. I feel like this story pretty much exemplifies what this collection is about because it allows Paige, a character who is relegated to Kid Mercury's sad backstory by everyone else, to actually have a voice and tell her story. And she's also allowed to be very angry about it. She's allowed to be angry that she died like a pointless death in a way that didn't end up mattering and that everyone's kind of moved on and forgotten her and she's just stuck living in the afterlife knowing that like no one really remembers her anymore and I think that's kind of the point of the collection that even if the characters don't get better lives they still get to be angry about what happened to them and have voices about it. The next monologue in this collection is The Heat Death of Julia Ash which is inspired by Jean Grey from Marvel's X-Men comics and as you might remember from episode 10 X-Men Extravaganza we both recently read the Dark Phoenix saga for the very first time, so I was very intrigued to reread this with the actual comic background that it is drawing on. And if you aren't familiar with the Dark Phoenix saga, basically Jean Grey is a powerful telepath and telekinetic, which means she can like read minds and move stuff with her mind, and she is the only female superhero on the original X-Men team. And in the plotline of the Dark Phoenix saga, she becomes incredibly powerful and unstable, and then kind of voluntarily dies. There's a lot more going on, but that's like the general gist of it. There are two film adaptations that I believe are quite bad, and I have never watched either of them. And I think this also somewhat draws on the movies, but I have not seen them. I think that the Dark Phoenix Saga holds like a very prominent but controversial place in pop culture because the original story is like very melodramatic and tragic, but not without its problematic elements like racism in the comics and misogyny. But like, obviously it makes sense to sort of riff on the Dark Phoenix saga and the fate of Jean Grey in a book that is all about female superhero characters with tragic fates. So there are kind of these themes of power and corruption and a fall from power and death. And like, are powerful women scary? And like, do they have to automatically reduce to being crazy and then dying is sort of what this story specifically engages in. So there's a lot of thoughts out there on the Dark Phoenix saga and Catherine Valenti obviously has some. So Julia Ash is the Jean Grey character, and she's part of, like the X-Men, a superhero group of this new branch of evolution who developed powers and used them to fight evil, much like the actual X-Men. And she follows a similar character arc to Jean in the Dark Phoenix Saga, where she becomes this cosmically powerful being, and then is kind of put down by her teammates for her own good. And also it deals with this interesting idea that the leader of the superhero team bound her powers when she was a kid, which is a thing that happened to Jean in the movies, but not in the comics, I believe. So that's kind of interesting. And also, um, it also deals with the fact that Jean Grey committed genocide by eating a star, which is both a thing in this story and in the original comics. So I've watched slightly more of the X-Men movies than you have. I would not recommend most of them because they're not very good. And I, I do think that this portrayal of Julia Ash draws pretty heavily off of the movies as well as the comics. For example, like you said, 
the thing about the Professor X character in this story being the one who found Julia's powers because they were too powerful is something that comes from the movies and not the comics. As far as I know, I guess there could have been a later retcon about that, but it is not in the original story at all. And I feel like the adaptations tend to have more of like a, oh, this female character is too powerful. Oh God, she's gone crazy. Oh no. Whereas the original story is just kind of more of like a melodramatic tragedy about a character who is manipulated by other people into becoming overwhelmed with power and doing bad things. Notably, the movie adaptations both leave out the plot where Jean is seeing hallucinations by like a evil mutant character who's making her see and believe things that aren't real, which is what eventually prompts her to snap and become really evil. But most adaptations tend to leave this out, I guess, because it's a little bit complicated to explain. But either way, I do think that this is pretty clearly a dissection of Jean's portrayal in most media adaptations of the Dark Phoenix saga, because there's this idea that she's the most powerful member of the team, but all of the men feel really threatened. And when she does eventually become too powerful and can't control herself, they're all immediately like, oh man, we have to kill Julie. It's the only thing to do. We can't possibly do anything else to fix it. And also sort of the idea that a female character who is very powerful will automatically and inevitably always become unstable and kind of have to be reduced or put down feels like something that is being very much dissected in this story and is something that you could say is present in the Dark Phoenix saga. Like the idea that a woman could not handle being so powerful and like it has to drive her mad so she commits cosmic genocide and then dies because we all know that women with power are scary, right? Also, this has this story has kind of a fun aspect where it plays with all of the different ways that writers after the Dark Phoenix saga have retconned Jean's story and her abilities, which retcon, if you're not familiar with comic book lingo, lingo is short for retroactive continuity and is basically when writers go back to rewrite a story, an existing story by revealing new information like you thought this character was just a random person, but actually they're this character's secret twin or something. And in this case, a lot of writers after the Dark Phoenix saga have retconned it so that Jean was like not in control of herself or that it was like someone pretending to be Jean and that she wasn't actually the one doing any of these bad things. And this story kind of plays around with that a bit. Okay, actually, I've read a little bit more of the X-Men comics that are relevant. So I just want to explain this because it is truly a bonkers example of comic book retcons. So in the original Dark Phoenix saga, they're like in space and some stuff goes down. And I think Jean is like exposed to cosmic radiation and becomes like really, really powerful. And then she uh, kind of goes crazy and becomes the Dark Phoenix and goes out to space and eats a star and then is put on trial by some aliens because she just committed genocide and then she voluntarily dies. Um, and then she is dead for like a really, really long time after that. And like, there's a lot of stories about how Jean is just like not there and other characters sort of join the team to fill her place. But then several years later, some writers were like, hey, we want to bring Jean Grey back as a character so we can get like the original gang back together and have them fight bad guys. Oh shoot, we have to deal with the fact that she's sort of committed cosmic genocide. That's a bit of a complicated thing. We're going to hand wave it and retcon it. So it was actually this cosmic being known as the Phoenix Force taking on her form. And the real Jean had been in a healing cocoon in the bottom of Jamaica Bay ever since like all the space stuff went down. So even before she became like really powerful, then they just like take Jean out of the ocean and they're like, hi, Jean, that's great. Now you can go back to being a superhero. And it's like really wild to read because you're just kind of expected to be like, yeah, sure, that sounds plausible. And then other writers have kind of gone and played with that and been like, are Jean and the Phoenix the same person? Is like the Phoenix possessing Jean? But like, it's very confusing because writers can't seem to agree whether Jean was like 
responsible for her actions in the most iconic Jean Grey story of all time. Anyway, so uh, the villain who eventually defeats Julia in this story is called Retcon, and he's basically a villain who can meddle with timelines and manipulate reality, and he kind of just, like, puts Julia in a situation where she doesn't have any of her powers and, like, isn't really aware of who she is or what she's done, and so she just kind of lives, like, a regular life most of the time, except for, like, he grants her something like 15 minutes every week where she, like, knows who she is, what her history is, which is kind of a clever way of dealing with the retcons in Jean's history because, like, they tried to very severely tone down uh, how powerful and destructive she was, uh, after the original story and so having a character called retcon be the one who like eventually took julia out is kind of a clever nod to that it is so clever i really liked that especially having read a lot of the really wild and inconsistent stories about jean gray it's a very clever commentary not only on the stories in comic books but how the stories are written and rewritten I also just like how Valenti sort of ties Julia's fate into this general idea of women always being forced to silence themselves and take up less room and be less powerful so men around them don't feel threatened. And she sort of ties Julia's psychic powers into like this idea that she is too powerful and men are afraid of her because of that. So the next story after that is the tragical comedy or comical tragedy of Pauline Ketch, which is based off of the character of Harley Quinn from DC Comics. Instead of Harley Quinn and the Joker, there's Mr. Punch and Pretty Polly, which is from the Punch and Judy shows, which is kind of clever because like the Joker's like theatrical uh, connection is sort of an important part of the character. So basically Pauline is a rich girl arsonist who meets Mr. Punch when she is sentenced to an insane asylum. I would not say this is my favorite story in the collection, but there's a pretty ruthless parody of Batman in the form of a character called Grimdark, who's a rich billionaire who, as Pauline puts it, uh, beats people up and has a lot of daddy issues. Uh, Pauline in general is like very skeptical of Grimdark and it's kind of funny to read about. I think this is not my favorite story in the collection, mostly because Pauline's story is actually more unhappy than Harley Quinn's in the comics. In the comics, well, actually, Harley Quinn's character is a little bit complicated to explain. She is originally from Batman, the animated series in the 90s, and she was just like a henchman of the Joker, but people thought she was a fun enough character that eventually she was put in the comics, and she is the Joker's girlfriend. They're kind of like this mad love villain couple who do like destructive things and try to outwit Batman all the time. But as shown in the animated series and the comics, their relationship is often very unequal and the Joker is often extremely abusive to Harley Quinn. So it's not a good or healthy relationship for her. And in the comics and also the movies, Harley has actually managed to kick the Joker to the curb and become like a wildly popular character in her own right, who has like a bunch of solo series and has been in a bunch of movies and has like video games and cosplays and like all over the place. Like she's a very, very popular character. And she also has a new love interest right now in the form of the other supervillain Poison Ivy. So Harley Quinn's actually doing pretty great right now. Whereas in this story, Pauline breaks out of the asylum with her punch. They go on a rampage of committing crimes together as like kind of a Bonnie and Clyde type character. Uh, Pauline knows the secret identity of Grimdark, who is Mr. Punch's nemesis. And once she tells Mr. Punch who it is, he kills her. And then she's just stuck languishing in the afterlife, convinced that he still loves her and is coming for her. So it's kind of a more downer ending than Harley Quinn has right now. I agree. I think 
this collection didn't come out that long ago. It's from 2017 and we're recording this in early 2022. But I would say even in the years since this was published, Harley Quinn's character has definitely continued to evolve and sort of leave behind the Joker. Like the movie Birds of Prey had not come out at the time that this was published. And I think this is a really good commentary on people who like romanticize the idea of Harley Quinn and the Joker and are like, oh yeah, they're like this badass, crazy, super, super villain couple who love each other and like don't care about anything except like causing mayhem. But like when you read the comics or watch the movies, you're like, oh no, this is, this is an abusive relationship. Like he is terrible. And just because he managed to like seduce her into a life of villainy does not mean it's like an equal relationship or that she's like happy there. So I think it's a good commentary on being like, actually Harley Quinn and the Joker relationship is really messed up. But I think, you know, in light of how Harley Quinn has managed to develop as a character and become like a really popular female anti-hero who like is not tied to the Joker anymore, I think it does fall like a little flat just because like Birds of Prey is out there and it's great. So it's kind of like a nice problem to have, which is that the character that the story is commenting on has gone on to do so many better things than like she originally had that this story isn't like necessary anymore, which is kind of a great problem to have. Yeah, I mean, since this collection of stories was published, Harley Quinn has been in Birds of Prey, which is a movie entirely about her breaking up with the Joker and then going out to join a girl gang. And then she was also in The Suicide Squad, which is about Harley Quinn having lots of adventures, which the Joker is not in at all. So like, basically, if you're a fan of Harley Quinn, it's like a pretty good time to be a fan right now. And this story is also, to be fair, kind of limited by the general form of this collection, which is that all the women are in the afterlife and they are dead and talking about their lives. So Pauline kind of had to end the story dead in order to be part of the collection. So basically it does a good job of interrogating the way that Harley Quinn and the Joker's relationship is very unequal and abusive, but also if you want content about Harley Quinn having a good time and having a partner that's like equal and treats her well, then you can just go read some comics or watch Harley Quinn, the animated series, or just like do any number of things. Oh, I do want to mention there is one comic that I read a few months ago, which is called Harleen. And it's kind of like a psychological drama about Harley Quinn's relationship with the Joker. And I found it similar to this because in the, in the comic Harleen, she is a psychologist who meets the Joker at Arkham Asylum and in trying to redeem him becomes a villain herself. And this is Harley Quinn's like established backstory in the comics. And I've always found it very implausible and difficult to believe, but I felt like that comic was a really good psychological drama that actually managed to convince me like how Harley Quinn would end up following the Joker into villainy. And it also it was like a pretty unflinching look of the way their relationship is very unequal and he's obviously manipulating her. So it's interesting to see that like maybe comics originally played their relationship straight as like a villain couple, but I think there's becoming more of an exploration of the way that like actually Harley Quinn deserves better. Ooh, that does sound interesting. I don't think I've read that, but now I'm like gonna write that down on my comic list to read later. The next monologue in this collection is called The Ballad of Blue Bayou. Bayou? Bayou? I am sorry, I'm not Southern. I don't know how to say that word. <laughs> this monologue is based off of Mura from DC's Aquaman comics, specifically a storyline where her child with Arthur Curry, aka Aquaman, is killed by a supervillain, and she's kind of demonized for being overly emotional about the death of her child. And I'm really not familiar with Aquaman stories, like, at all. Like, I think the only Aquaman comic I have ever read 
is the one that was in the DC Pride anthology, which is not even about Aquaman. It's about like Aqualad or something. So I just know this secondhand. And Bayou, who is the Mur equivalent, is actually alive. She's not dead like the other people who are in the Hellhath Club. She is just able to go in and out of the afterlife and she's searching for her dead son. One thing that I really liked about this story is that Valenti really constructs a unique version of Atlantis, which is where Bayou is from. She's kind of this mer creature who lives at the bottom of the ocean and is like the princess of Atlantis. But the Atlantis that Valenti builds is like very grimy and punk. And I think it did a great job of evoking a setting outside of the underworld. Blue Bayou just has like a very fun voice because she's very brash and punk rock. Um, but also she's someone who has like gone through this really terrible loss and is very unsupported by her husband. So you sort of get to see her like develop, but also still sort of retain this anger at the world. Yeah, I'm also not incredibly familiar with Aquaman comics. I know about this plotline with Mura secondhand, but I think that this story is also kind of a deconstruction of the way that Mura is not allowed to show emotions such as grief without being considered hysterical. Like her son dies, everyone's like, oh my god, get over it already. You're just like being too emotional. The story also kind of ruthlessly makes fun of Aquaman because Bayou's husband is obviously like the Aquaman equivalent and he's half human, half mer, And he has the exact same power set as everyone in Atlantis. Like he can breathe underwater, he can talk to sea creatures, but he's like, I am the specialist person ever. All the heroes think that I'm so unique for my ocean power and Bayou's just like I can also do everything that you can do and I also have a tail so I thought that was kind of funny because I've always been like why is Aquaman special can't he just do the same things that everyone in Atlantis can do and the story did in fact point this out and it also kind of allows Bayou to have like a real exploration of grief like you said she's like a very punk rock character she's like kind of hardcore she was in like a Atlantis punk band when she was younger but she also is allowed to like express real grief over the death of her son who died uh, largely by accident during a fight with a supervillain and she's allowed to express this grief and like it acknowledges that telling a mother to like get over the death of her child is a terrible thing to do and that female characters should be allowed to express their feelings without being demonized for it so even though this isn't a story that I know a lot about the canon that's based off of I did enjoy it because it allows the Mura character to like say how unfair her treatment by other characters has been. The next story that we have is Daisy Green Says I Love You, which is based on Karen Page from Marvel's Daredevil comics. If you're only familiar with Karen Page from the Netflix Daredevil show, which is what I am, you might not know that in the comics she was involved in a very long storyline where she became addicted to drugs, got involved in sex work, and was eventually murdered by Daredevil's nemesis. And I think she actually may still be dead in the mainstream comics. Uh, which is strange considering she was in the TV show. At least the Daredevil comics that I have read, he's had different love interests, so I don't think that she's been in anything since then. Daisy's story has a similar trajectory of a superhero's girlfriend becoming involved in sex work and drugs, although in this case her death isn't at a supervillain's hand, but it's kind of about like the toll that being the girlfriend of a superhero takes on you. I would say this is probably the darkest story in this collection because Daisy meets a very sad end and even though she is in the afterlife she's still very much haunted by like what happened to her in the above world. I have read some Daredevil comics but not the ones in which Karen Page was in so I sort of like went and looked up what this story was based on while I was rereading this collection and I was like wow I did not know that was part of Karen's character at all because in the Netflix Daredevil show which is where I first encountered her character 
I only knew her as sort of like the secretary who then has like some romance with Matt, but does not like go on this terrible downward spiral of like, I don't know, anti-drug PSA or something. Um, I did think the story had some really interesting insight into like why it would suck to be the stay-at-home girlfriend of a superhero who's like expected to stay around and wait for him while he risks his life every night, which is sort of a side to the story that we usually don't see because usually when female characters in superhero comics get like a lot of attention on them, it's because they are superheroes in their own right, which I love. I love a good female superhero, but this sort of looks at like what it would be like to be someone who doesn't have powers, but loves someone who risks his life like every night and sort of like the psychological toll that would take on you. And it's an interesting parallel to Paige Embry from earlier in the collection because Paige has this like offhand comment where she thinks that being a superhero's stay at home wife would be really easy. And in this story, Daisy kind of pushes back against that and is like, no, actually it's not easy. And it was really hard. And that's why I eventually left the Daredevil analog and ended up in this terrible life because like, I just couldn't deal with knowing that he was out there risking his life all the time. Yeah, because in the Daredevil comics, you just see Matt Murdock going out and like fighting a bunch of ninjas or like fighting Bullseye or fighting Wilson Fisk. And you're like, hell yeah, he saved the day. That was awesome. And you don't really think about what it would be like for characters like Karen Page to be like sitting at home wondering if maybe he's going to come back that night or maybe he'll get thrown in prison or die or like be captured by villains because she is not a character with superpowers. She's just a secretary for a law firm. Um, in the, and it's the same with Daisy Green. So the character kind of acknowledges like it's really difficult to be in a relationship with someone who's constantly risking their life and like how, how they take a big toll on you. And that's kind of eventually what leads to her downward spiral because she leaves him and then she gets involved in kind of some bad stuff and then she eventually dies. But the story is kind of like, I mean, it's kind of an exploration of the Daredevil comics are about like this dark and gritty hero who like goes out and like fights bad guys on the streets of Hell's Kitchen at night. And you're like, yeah, he just defeated those bad guys. But like, it would actually be really terrifying to be the person who is waiting at home every night for him to come back because you think that maybe one day he won't come back. And so that's kind of why Daisy Green's story was so interesting to me because it's not a side of superhero comics that you see very much. But the stay-at-home wife of a superhero who just like doesn't know if maybe this will be the day that he's finally defeated by his nemesis. So it's a very sad story, but like the other ones in the collection, I think it has something interesting to say about the treatment of female characters and the stories that they don't get to tell in mainstream comics. The final story in this collection is called Happy Birthday, Samantha Dane. I would say it's my favorite story in the collection, and it's inspired by Alexandra DeWitt from Green Lantern Comics, who was the woman who was killed and stuff in a refrigerator, therefore leading to the whole like woman in refrigerators phenomenon being named and categorized. And Samantha is the newest arrival in the underworld, and she is the girlfriend of a superhero who gained the ability to bring his graffiti art to life. I think that this had the coolest original superheroes because there's a league called the Avant-Garde who all have art-related powers, and it was just a very neat aspect of original world building. I think it's supposed to be kind of a riff on the Green Lanterns because they get their power from jewelry, but I thought it was really cool and like the art aspect was just like interesting to me. Yeah, it's very fun. Alexander DeWitt is like a much lesser known character than the other ones in this collection because she was never a hero in her own right as far as I know she wasn't even a long-term love interest she was just like this one female character who died to make 
the character mad at like some random villain who didn't matter in the long run but I think that's why the story is interesting because she's such a because she's not a character that like you would think of when you think about victimized female characters but there are so many of them and she's just one of many also this story has the best line in the book which is Samantha who was like the character who inspired her killed by her boyfriend's nemesis and shoved into a refrigerator and then appears in the afterlife she has like the best line that really kind of sums up the whole book and it goes I belong in the refrigerator because the truth is I'm just food for a superhero he'll eat my death up and get the energy he needs to become a legend which is so good it takes like the metaphor of the refrigerator that has been used to catalog this phenomenon and turns it into like a larger thing about women whose deaths are like the cost a superhero pays to become like great and motivated to like take on supervillains. It's just very good. I thought it was a really strong note to end the collection on because it sort of brings it back to the character who inspired all of this. Yeah, it's an amazing line because when Gail Simone started cataloging the concept of women in refrigerators, she called it that just because the example that she thought of had been stuffed in a fridge. And in this case, Catherine Valente kind of takes the idea of fridging and turns it into a metaphor that like makes it work. Like these women die and like they're the fuel that the superheroes need to become legends. And like, it's so good. It's like, it's a line that stuck with me ever since I wrote this collection for the first time a few years ago, because it just takes like this random tragedy and kind of like makes it like say something like these women die for like, a reason but it's not a good reason because they're just being used by someone else's story. One thing I wanted to mention about this story is that Samantha is the only woman of color in this collection. She's black which I believe is present in like both the story and also the illustration that Annie Wu did for it which it's not a super diverse collection which is unfortunately like a reflection of mainstream comics. I don't even think Alexander DeWitt who inspired this collection is a woman of color. I like looked her up because I've, I've never read any Green Lantern comics and obviously like there are a lot of characters who are not white women who've been like victimized in superhero comics so I would definitely like to seek out like other voices who've sort of written on this stuff but that's just something I wanted to mention that it's not a terribly diverse collection of superhero stories which is kind of reflective of the source material it's drawing from I think. I do really like that this book ends on a slightly happier note or like at least as happy as it can end on because all these women have suffered horrible tragedies and betrayals and losses in their lives but they're also able to find solidarity together in the afterlife and through the hell half club they're able to articulate their anger about the things that happened to them and how like helpless they were in their own stories so it's still kind of a downer ending because they'll never like get justice against the people who killed them but at least they managed to find some kind of community together. And I liked that as an ending note for the story. I also love the final illustration that Annie Wu did for this, which is just them all kind of sitting in a cafe, talking and drinking and commiserating. And I just like the idea that even though they're dead and that they had like kind of terrible ends, they've managed to find like this sense of community in the afterlife. So it doesn't get to fix the stories they had in life, but in death, they have found like some kind of happiness, which is a nice note to end on. 
Also, another interesting thing is that there's apparently supposed to be a TV show of this book at some point, at least back when it came out, Amazon Prime optioned the rights, and apparently it's going to be an anthology show called Dead Town, and there hasn't been a lot of news on it in the last few years, because I guess things move pretty slowly in Hollywood, so if it is happening, we're not actually sure, but I think it would make a really good anthology show. Amazon Prime is already doing a grim, a, a grim dark superhero show in the form of The Boys, but like I said, uh, I, I feel like that show isn't really doing it for me. I'm not really sure what I have to say besides being edgy and grim, whereas I feel like this collection of stories actually has me to say about the treatment of female characters in comics and like how they should be allowed to be angry about that and speak out against it. And I think it would also make a good TV show because, like we said, a lot of the characters in this are really heavily based off of existing characters in comics like Aquaman or Batman or the Joker or Harley Quinn but it also does kind of feel like its own like lived in world of superheroes like a character will turn up in one story and like be referenced in another one or they'll talk about events that have happened outside the story so it feels like a potentially big enough world that if you wanted to make a tv show and do like an episode on each story I think you could do it it'd make a great one yeah I think it'd make a great tv show I also feel like the funny thing is when I was reading this, I got so sucked into it because it's just like a very powerful concept for a collection of stories and Valenti's writing is really great. And like the idea of superheroes that are like similar to existing ones, but like also their own thing, like that line is walked pretty well, I think. I started like brainstorming other characters that I wanted to see in this collection, which I think is a sign that I felt like it was a satisfying exploration of victimized female characters in comics because I was like man I would like to read a Wanda Maximoff story or a Lorna Dane story and then I was like wait 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 let's let's read the ones we have here the fact that I could think of more female characters that I thought had been done wrong though is maybe a sign of a trend in comics indeed being a thing I don't know it was just satisfying for me to read because I think the way that I see superhero comics like they are inherently this power fantasy because it's like the idea that a single person can put on a costume and they can save the world, they can right the wrongs, they can like bring justice, but also like they can be kind of alienating. If you read comics and you're like, wow, that female superhero is like really sexualized. Wow, like this gay character doesn't have like, a very well-written story or like, wow, this character of color seems kind of stereotypically written. It's a power fantasy, but it's not always an equal power fantasy. Like sometimes I don't feel empowered reading superhero comics, even though it has been changing recently with like a lot of very cool new characters or old characters getting the spotlight, like someone like Ms. Marvel. But I feel like superhero comics can just be sort of an alienating genre if they don't consider like who wants to see an empowering fantasy beyond just a straight white guy. And the way that this therefore kind of looks at the cost of power and gives like insight into voices that are not usually centered in superhero stories, I thought was very satisfying and kind of a needed thing. It's obviously a thing in superhero comics now that there are like more writers who are like bringing different perspectives to the table, but I still thought that this was a very satisfying look at a bad trend in superhero comics that like really shouldn't be a thing. Yeah, exactly. I think it is definitely a sign of how pervasive this issue of fridging female characters is that I could think off the top of my head of like a lot of other characters that Valenti could have written stories about it just goes on and on and on like you could write one about Wanda Maximoff or Lorna Dane or like the dozens of murderer girlfriends of superheroes whose names people don't really remember and like you said people are kind of 
there's I think the trend of fringing female characters is starting to shift at least a little bit and people are trying to make up for stuff that's happened in the past at least in some way like the character of Spider-Gwen being a character from an alternate version of Marvel where she was Spider-Man instead of Peter Parker is kind of a way to try to make up for Gwen Stacy's death but like it is still very much a trend in comics that has happened and is still happening. So this is kind of a satisfying read because it's like, yeah, no, you're allowed to be angry about the way these female characters are treated. You're allowed to think this was bad and misogynistic and offensive. And I think that's why it was a satisfying read, even if it's not just necessarily a happy one, just because it vindicated a lot of my negative feelings about comics. And because while I do love comics, they can also be very frustrating to read as a female reader because there's so much misogyny in so many of the stories and so the refrigerator monologues is kind of it's not necessarily imagining a better world but it's at least acknowledging that there are problems in the stories that we have. I also feel like it's very satisfying that it is written by a female author because there are a number of cool female superheroes in the world but like they're not always written by people who reflect those identities like The Spider-Gwen comics I personally don't recommend, even though I think Spider-Gwen is a fun concept because they are written by a guy who then turned out not to be like that great or like characters like Storm, who is an awesome black female superhero, but I don't think has like ever been written by someone who shares that identity. So I personally found it satisfying that the refrigerator monologues is written by someone who is like a woman and therefore can like sort of bring some authenticity to it because it's not that male writers can't write female superheroes or even like grapple with misogyny or feminism in their stories but it's just that like it's satisfying to have a female author take on this trope that is misogynistic. So ultimately I think Hench and the refrigerator monologues are not necessarily happy books but I do think they have some important things to say about superhero comics as evidenced by the multiple episodes that we have done on various superhero comics. Both of us are pretty big fans of this genre, and we've read a lot of comics, and I'll no doubt keep reading more in the future, but there's also always stuff that I'm curious about them not including, or that makes me angry, like, what is the life of a supervillain's henchman like? Why do all these female characters have to die to make the male characters sad so they can go fight the bad guys? And I think books like this do a really interesting job of filling that gap and, like, creating a unique and interesting world with superheroes, but also is very reflective of ones that already exist as a way to kind of explore stuff that doesn't get explored in those stories. I think the main piece of advice that I'm taking away from these two books is that if superheroes randomly begin manifesting in my life, I will avoid them at all costs. And with that, we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you'd like to keep up with our further podcasting misadventures, you can find us at our website, neverthetwinsshallmeet.com, on Twitter at NeverTwinsCast, on Instagram at NeverTheTwinsShallMeet, or on Tumblr at NeverTheTwinsShallMeet.tumblr.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to drop us a review or a rating, and we'll see you next time.